You are listening to the sermon podcast of Nielsville Presbyterian Church, a Christ-centered church in Germantown, Maryland. To learn more about Nielsville, visit us online at nielsville.org. Last week, as Jamie mentioned, we focused on Christ-centered worship, that we're called as a body believer to lift up high in our worship the name of Christ. Today, we're going to focus on go, or said another way, that we are sent to a Christ-centered mission, that we at National, at National, Nielsville Presbyterian Church are to be a people who are filled with grace to share that grace message to those in our lives. You know, we do hear all kinds of messages, do we not? Depending on what cable news program you listen to, you hear a message. No matter if you, live, you are a Geico insurance person or a Liberty Mutual insurance person, we hear a message. Political candidates are giving us a message. And in these messages, they are inviting us to participate in their mission. This passage this morning, Jesus proclaims a message. A message that will both encourage us but also challenge us. A message, unlike the messages that we often hear, is that his message does not change. His message is internally focused. His message is about changing lives permanently and for his glory. So follow along as I read this passage from Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 22. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set, all, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the glorious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physicians, heal yourself. What we heard you did at Capernaum, do it here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there are many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all of the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zapatha in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, Elisha and, none of them were, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to, to the brow of the hill on which 
the town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But, Jesus, but passing through their midst, he went away. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, again, as we enter your presence, as we look at your word, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do your work of sanctification, do your work of growing us more like Christ, that you would draw us to appreciate what you have given us in this message, this message that has changed us and this message that you desire for us to share with others. Do that work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sue Farrell, the other this past week, shared on our Facebook page this statistic on how people get to church. 2% come to church through advertising. So we shouldn't spend too much money on advertising, I think is the moral of that survey. 6% come to church out of an invitation by the pastor, which I thought was, I'm not sure if that's high. That seems a little high. Anyway, another 6% are invited by organization advertisement. 86% are invited, come to church, why? Invited by a friend. Yeah, 86%. Are you surprised? How many of you come to know Christ? Wasn't it often, I know in my own life, was through friends that introduced me to the Savior. Listen to what other leaders Christian leaders in the past and present have encouraged about our call to proclaim the gospel to others. Martin Luther, the 16th century reformer, says this, it is the duty of every Christian to be Christ to his neighbor. Becky Peppert, uh, one who wrote the, a great book on outreach and evangelism, out of the salt shaker into the world, says this, if you live by some va- the same values and priorities Jesus had, you will find evangelism happening naturally. It becomes a lifestyle, not a project. C.S. Lewis, a great Christian thinker, says a church exists for nothing else but to draw people to Christ. Daniel Zabaraja Niles, a 20th century world leader in evangelism from Sri Lanka, says this, I love this, evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And then Richard Havelson, the former pastor of Fourth Presbyterian Church in Bethesda, right down the road, and the former chaplain of the U.S. Senate, says this, evangelism is not salesmanship. It's not urging people, pressing them, and coercing them, overwhelming them, or subduing them. I like this. Evangelism is telling a message. Evangelism is reporting good news. So what does the Bible say about us telling others about the gospel. What does Jesus say in this passage? This morning I want us to explore some questions. What is the message of Jesus? Who is the message for? And how do we participate in that message? So let's look at what is the message. Luke 4, 16 says that it was, that it was Jesus' custom to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath to teach the word. The synagogue, right, you remember, is where the Jewish people came to worship God. The main purpose of the synagogues was for education of the people in the truths of God's word. And when they gathered, they did primarily two things. They prayed and they taught the Bible. 
In fact, they gathered at least three times a week on the Sabbath, which was Saturday for them, then also after work on Monday and Thursday. The goal of all of these three meetings was to teach the entire Word of God. So on Sabbath, they taught the Bible in such a way so that the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, was taught through every three and a half years. Generally, the selection of the day was divided up into seven sections, and each passage was assigned to different men. You would hear seven messages. That was a long day. Just think, count your blessings. You only get one sermon today, right? See, the Sabbath day, they thought was, how they expected was for rest and reflecting on God's word, right? Now, sometimes if they had time, along with the study of the Pentateuch, they might take some time to study other books of the Bible. And this is where we come today with Jesus. This is why Jesus, when he was teaching the Sabbath, is teaching from Isaiah. Look what he, look what he says, and again, Luke 7, 14, uh, 17 through 19. He says, a scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So we see that Jesus' sermon text comes primarily from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, but also some selective passages from Isaiah 58. Now, this was certainly not the whole text that Jesus taught from that day, but Luke records the highlights, or maybe the portion that Jesus focused on the most. Jesus taught from this passage to explain to the people of Nazareth what he came to do, what his message was. And so he read from Isaiah. Let me read Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, because you'll notice some differences. But listen to how Isaiah records this passage. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God and to comfort all who mourn. Now in the Hebrew, both in the Old Testament and here Jesus as he is reading in the Hebrew, this word, the anointing, or to anoint, often refers to Messiah, the Messiah that the Old Testament believers were waiting for. So when Jesus is reading of the anointing in the first part of verse 18, that is a clear reference to, to the Messiah, to the promised Messiah. And the rest of verses 18 and 19 tell us six things that the Messiah will focus on, and we'll look at that in our next point. But I want us to focus on this last part that Jesus says in 19. He says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This statement has reference to the year of Jubilee. We even sang a song about Jubilee described in Leviticus 25. In that verse... There's delivery images that parallel the description of the Jubilee year where debts are canceled for Old Testament believers and slaves were freed every 50th year. It's a picture of forgiveness. It's a picture of spiritual liberation, which is the center of Jesus' message. Everybody during the Jubilee celebration in Old Testament times received a brand new start, received a fresh beginning. 
So let me just read a little bit of that passage in Leviticus 25. It says, beginning at eight, uh, Leviticus 5, verse 8, You shall count seven weeks of years and seven, and seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of, of, of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. And on the day of the atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. With each of you we shall return to his property, and each of you shall return to his clan. That the fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. And in it you shall neither sow nor weep what grows itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines. For it is a jubilee, and it shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field, and in this year of jubilee each of you shall return to his property. And if you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. You shall pay your neighbor according to the number of years after the jubilee, and you shall sell to, your, to you according to the number of years for crops. If the years are many, you shall increase the price, and if the years are few, you shall reduce the price, for it is the number of the crops that he is selling to you. You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God." And, again, and it continues to explain how the redemption is for the slaves, to be free the slaves, and to free debt as well, as, as you would read more in that chapter. What Jesus is saying is that if you receive my message, I am going to make you brand new. You are a new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. The old has been washed away, the new has been put on. That is why Paul tells us in his letter to Corinth not to let the past define you, but to press on towards the future we have in our new identity in Christ. That in Christ, our past sins are forgiven. He has taken our shame and he's taken our guilt. We are brand new in Christ. That is what Jesus is referring to as he, as he focuses on this year of Jubilee where everything is made new, everything is redeemed, everybody, everything is set free. He's saying that this is what I'm coming to do. In fact, he says that in verse 21. He's saying that, he's saying that the at this present time, as I am speaking, it's like the message of comfort that Isaiah brought to the nations. In fact, the totality of, of the deliverance that Isaiah described is now put into motion through, with Jesus' coming. He is the servant poor for, par excellence. He is the Messiah. Look, what does he say in verse 21? And he began to say to them, Today... The scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That is the message. Jesus has come to redeem, to liberate, to set free a people for himself. I have come, Jesus says, I have come. I am the Messiah. I am the long-awaited one. I do want us to draw our attention even to something else. What's interesting is that Jesus does not quote all of Isaiah 1 and 2. He misses one, past, one part of, the, of that section. He, he does not mention the day of vengeance of our God in what he reads in Luke 4. Why does he not include that statement on judgment? Some have said the, the admission may have been to delay the allusion to judgment until Jesus' warning in Luke 4, uh, 24 through 47. Or others have said the ultimate time of God's vengeance 
is not yet arrived in this coming of Jesus, that it will come in the next coming of Jesus. But I may, and I think that, I think I like that second one, but I want us to think about it in this way as well, that the God's vengeance is going to come, but not on his people. See, Jesus understood that, that God will take vengeance on him. And Jesus know, knew, that, 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 knew that, and so he didn't include it in that statement because he has come to pronounce liberty. He's, he, he's, he's come to pronounce salvation, and he's, he's come to know that one day vengeance will be dealt with, but it will be dealt on him. See, one day he will take God's vengeance that we deserved to deal with our sins. Our sins needed to be punished. But Jesus took the punishment. He took the vengeance from God that we deserve. Friends, what a message. The message is that Jesus is a true promised anointed Messiah, the Savior, the Deliverer that God's people were anticipating. Many have been praying for many years for the Messiah to come. And Jesus, on that Sabbath day, proclaimed that he is that man. He is that Messiah. He is the long-awaited Redeemer. That is our message. And we see that it's a life-changing message because we see that who this message is for. Let's look again at verses 17 and 18. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's come to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery sight to the blind, to set liberty those who are oppressed. All these statements are pointing to spiritual poverty, spiritual brokenness, spiritual slavery, and spiritual blindness. Regarding the poor, he's come to preach good news to the poor. We see in Luke chapter 6, verses 20 to 26, and we will not turn turn there at this time, but it's, it's Luke's record of the Beatitudes that, that, that Luke says that the poor are compared to prophets, those who hear and believe the message from God, and the rich are compared to false prophets, those who reject the message of God. So they have said that it's clear that Jesus' message and benefits are not given carte blanche to the poor, but are related to their developing a proper response to him. The good news is an announcement, an invitation for all types of people. Nonetheless, the description applies because it, it is the poor in general who sense their need in the greatest way and as a result respond most direct, directly and honestly to Jesus. They characterize concretely the person in need. Their material lack often translates into spiritual sensitivity, Humility, responsiveness to Jesus' message of hope and restoration. He has come to bring good news to the spiritually poor. He also says he's come to bring liberty to the captives. This liberty is from spiritual bondage to sin. All of us, every one of us, even when we are Christians, find ourselves in bondage to certain sins in our lives. But Jesus is reminding us that in him you have been set free. There's been an emancipation proclamation that declares every woman free, every man free, because of him and his message. 
We see that he's come to bring sight to the blind. And we know that in his ministry throughout the gospel, we see that he does physically heal the blind. But more importantly, he gives sight to those who are spiritually blind. Again, Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.4 says that Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. See, Jesus came to give our sight back to those who were blind. He gives spiritual understanding to those who once walked in darkness. Good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovery sight to the blind. He's come to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Another word for oppressed is translated bruised. This idea of being bruised, crushed, shattered, broken down, mistreated in life. Do you feel that way sometimes? Do you know others who feel that way, broken, mistreated, shattered, overlooked, lacerated by by life, distressed, downcast, exhausted, ready to quit. See, Jesus came to set you free and others in those similar situations free. He came to heal your wounds. He came to give you freedom and joy and peace. He's saying all of that can be found in me. What does he say? He says, come to me all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you, what? Rest. He's come for people who are broken, who are blind, who are poor, who are all messed up. With all these statements, it's those people that he came who know that they need help that they need rescuing, they need redeeming. Much like Jamie's friend finally came, Tana came to realize he needed a savior. What is Matthew, again, hear what Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 9. He says, but when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a, a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. And who did Jesus hang around with? And who did he minister to? And who are those who came to faith? The blind man, the lame man, the adulterous woman, the tax collectors, children, prostitutes, the thief on the cross. Those who were viewed as outcasts negatively by society. Those who may share their faith in high school and say, you're that God person. You're the God squad, I remember our university group was called in college. And they were not terms of endearment. <laughs> he did also hang around those who had wealth. Nicodemus, Jairus the Roman Saturian. But Jesus came, friends, to deliver and bring release for people who knew they are sinners. Do you know that you are a sinner needing grace? Who knew that they were broken? Do you realize that without Christ, you are broken? He's come to those who are bruised and brokenhearted. He came to bring forgiveness and an eternal relationship with God. And eventually, one day, when he comes again, the ministry of Jesus will be have total restoration and total redemption and release 
to all of creation. This is who the message is for. Are you identifying with those of the who of the message? I hope so. Because that then will drive you to respond to our last question. What part do we play, those who have heard the message, those who have received the message, those who understand that we are the, we are the poor, the blind, the brokenhearted, the, the, the spiritually captives who have been set free through Christ, what role do we play in proclaiming that message? Because Jesus wants us to align to that message. Jesus, the true Messiah, came to bring the message, the gospel to humanity. And we who received that good news, who, we who have received the message, are now called to proclaim it to others. Even we see in this passage, people respond differently. We see that they marveled. But even in them, in them marveling over the words, they became indifferent. We see some that became angry and hostile. They wanted to kill him, push him off the cliff. I love that line, but he passed through them, right? Even though their intent was to kill them, he kept on journeying with his message. See, there are opportunities for God to work. But we see in, 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 in some of the responses here this morning from this passage, there are opportunities for tragedy. And that is what is pictured in Jesus' synagogue visit, the promised arrival of the Messiah, the promise that he is the man, he is the Messiah, was a great historical moment, an occasion to enter into God's rich blessing of salvation and redemption. But the blessing was refused is quite tragic. The crowd's response is the first of many moments of opportunity lost in the gospel. It is another step in a paradise loss. The gospel brings a choice. Do you believe it or not? And that choice for all of us has a consequence. And this is one of the primary reasons for us to join Jesus in proclaiming his message to others. Our friends, our family, our neighbors need to be presented with that choice. Paul, in his letter to the church in Corinth, says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself, now counting their transgressions against them and entrusting to us the message of of reconciliation. Therefore, we are what? Ambassadors for Christ, making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, for our sake, he made himself to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, the power to proclaim this message humbly and effectively comes from our sure knowledge that we are reconciled to God, that God has given us a right relationship with him, that we are his delighted in sons and daughters. And with this knowledge, then it takes root as we carefully and constantly apply that message to our hearts, preaching it to us every day, reminding us of what we've been saved through from, what we have been rescued from, what we have been redeemed from, what we have been set free from, right? We learn that the message of Jesus is God's yes over us. And as we confess our sins, we are able to bear open 
honest, humble, gracious, confident witness of our God who we know that daily cleanses us and our need of grace and mercy. This is a glorious message, and it is our privilege to share it. Let me share a story. See John Miller, also known as Jack Miller, not the Jack Miller that we know and love here, but another Jack Miller who, who is, he is now deceased. He was a professor at Westminster Seminary. He was a, a church planter. He uh, had created a world um, mission organization called World Harvest. And even as he planted a church, he had a heart to plant other churches in Philadelphia area. There's many churches as a testimony of his work. He wrote a book called A Faith Worth Sharing, A Lifetime of Conversations About Christ. And so he shares both good and hard, hard conversations he had. And I want to share with you this one conversation. He says, another time I was sitting next to a manager of a large corporation. He was friendly and we talked over, over coffee on a two-hour flight. After he spent some time telling me about himself, his work, his family, he asked me, what do you do? I love his response. Listen to, listen to his humility here. Listen to his, his, his honesty here. He said he smiled and he said, oh, I go around the world helping people in trouble. But I also do a lot of blundering. Then I write books about it. <laughs> Immediately, I had his attention. And he began to ask me questions. And I explained, there was a time when I had, had a very high opinion on my own perfection and righteousness, Miller would say. But I had an eight-year-long eight conflict with my daughter, Barbara. At the beginning of our, of our estrangement, I saw all the faults on her side. But gradually, I came to see myself as pretty badly flawed. And when I admitted my failings, it eventually freed her to admit hers, and this brought about a wonderful reconciliation between us. Jack says, I continued telling him about my daughter and the book we had written together, Come Back, Barbara, great book, read it. And I said, you hear people talk about sin, but most people don't really understand what that word means. They hear the word sin, and they often think it means sexual lust. That is sin, but sin is something deeper. It's my wanting to control Barbara and her rebelling against me. It's living for yourself and fighting against God's will. It's really trying to be a little God and to run your own life your own way. In families, it's, it's expressed itself in the clash of big egos, and that's what causes conflict. Then I talked for a time about the atoning death of Christ. It's easy to un un underestimate the power of Christ's sacrifice if you underestimate God's holiness and our sin. See, our sin comes from our rebellious, self-centered hearts. God is, a holy, is holy all the way, and he hates sin. So you see our danger if we die without having Christ. I ended by saying, I know that the cross of Christ is my only hope. He took my judgment upon himself. He died for me. I know I'm completely forgiven. Faith is poor sinners like me des getting desperate and entrusting themselves to Jesus as their only hope. Hear that? He's very honest, right? Faith is poor sinners like me getting desperate and entrusting themselves to Jesus as their only hope. Then he says, we sat there quietly for a time. I eventually broke the silence by asking, do you see yourself ready to turn from your sins and trust life to Christ? 
he looked thoughtful, and I waited, and he said, while you were talking, I did that. Like Jack, we are invited by our Master, Savior, our Messiah, our Savior, Redeemer, to participate in his message. Now, it doesn't always turn out like that as Jack experienced, but we are still called to participate nonetheless in proclaiming it. To those who are spiritually poor, but also to the physically poor. To those who are captive and enslaved to sin, but also those who are held captive and enslaved by injustices in our community and in our nations. We, we share and proclaim the message to our neighbors, to our friends. We also share and proclaim it through our outreaches here, like ESL. I, at, at the funeral, I was, before the funeral, I went and I just looked at the ESL classes and nations are coming to us and they're learning to understand what it means to know Jesus. Our foster care ministry, our mops, our rebuilding together, our backpack ministry, our Christmas outreaches are all opportunities for us to share the, the love of Christ, the message of Christ, both in word and deed. We do word and deed together. We, it's not one or the other, but it's both and. We participate in proclaiming the message because we are motivated by how the message of the gospel has changed us and is changing us. The message that brought us redemption, that brought salvation to us. And as one has said, we go as one beggar to another beggar, letting them know about this bread of life, Jesus, who has come to save them from their spiritual poverty and brokenness. May that be our message, church as we leave here today. I get the privilege every Sunday to tell you about Jesus. And it is for us to be reminded of the great work on our behalf. But I want you also to take that message and take it and go, and as you're going home, engage it with others. Share them the life-changing message that a Savior has come and he has come to meet you where you are and to change you and to mold you and to save you and to give you a, a life that's eternal. Oh, may that message ring through our lives, both in word and deed. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God, I need you in this. I'm often indifferent. I'm often prideful. And that often gets in my way and engaging people with the love of Christ, the message of Christ. Sometimes we make it so difficult. So often we think we need to have all the answers before we share, but no, much like Jack Miller, we go in humility, we are honest before ourselves and our need of a Savior. Yeah, we're more sinful than we ever thought or imagined. And so we go humbly. We, we go knowing that we are a beggar, just as that person's a beggar, and we, we bring them and we lead them to the one who saves beggars like us. To this Jesus who has come to bring salvation, redemption, renewal, to bring a new creation in us. Oh, help us, oh God, to be more and more captivated and motivated by that saving work in our behalf so you will take it as we go and leave this place today. Do that work of grace, I pray. To learn more about Nielsville, visit us online at nielsville.org.